box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, big shout out to Kiki for looking after you today on Mornings on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. We've just hit 12 o'clock and this is Out of the Box. It's the show where each week I sit down with one guest and take a deep dive into their record collection and the stories that come with it. Right now I'm broadcasting from the stolen Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and my guest is joining me remotely from Wurundjeri country in Nam. I want to take this moment to recognise that each of us are coming to you from stolen Aboriginal land and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today, I'm joined by Michael Schaefer. Michael is a stand-up comic and writer for Network 10's The Project and Studio 10. You might have also caught him on the ABC's Comedy Bites and Triple J's Good As Friday. He's about to embark on a nationwide tour, For Sale, New Jokes Never Told, which we'll be able to catch at the Factory Theatre later this month. But if you can't wait until then, we might be treated to a few jokes from Michael now as we take a wander through the stories and songs that have shaped his life. Thanks for jumping on the show today, Michael. Thanks for having me on. This story begins in St Kilda. What was it like there when you were little? Yes, I grew up on the uh, main streets of East St Kilda. Um, And anyone who knows uh, East St Kilda in Melbourne, they'll know that those streets are not mean at (laughs) all. It's uh, mostly just um, Orthodox Jewish people. Um, so I grew up in my family, we were quite secular, but we always had Orthodox religious people knocking on our door, trying to convert us pretty much. So they'd come knock on our door, like every Friday and be like, you want to come to synagogue? We'd be like, no. And they'd be like, okay, we'll try next week. And, um, I think they tried every week for many years until they gave up. They're trying to convert a secular Jewish family into more hardcore (laughs) Judaism. Is that what you mean? Pretty much. They're like, please, we need the numbers. Help us out. So, so tell me about your family. Is it just mum and dad and you? No, I've got, so, yeah, obviously my mother and father, Sandy, um, Susan and Danny. And then, yeah, I've got an older sister, Jackie, and an older brother, Robbie. So I am the youngest of the three. Uh, but my sister has Down syndrome. So I kind of always felt like I'm like the middle child. She's kind of always been like the youngest, really. Mm. I never really kind of thought of it as different or strange just because like that was just my childhood and that was my my sister had down syndrome i just assumed that everyone's siblings had some sort of disability i guess so it was kind of the first time i realized that that wasn't the case was when i'd like go and play dates to other people's houses and um but i never really kind of i guess was upset about it or anything i think i just um realized like oh yeah i'm probably like the middle child yeah in all this and and also that's don't they say that middle children always, you know, go to comedy because they're trying to get attention? Yeah. Maybe that's why I turned into a comedy. I don't know. This feels like therapy now instead of an interview. But um, yeah, so I've always felt like a middle child for sure. Growing up, my parents would get a letter every year from the Australian government uh, asking if Jackie still had Down syndrome. And I've always thought, guys, you do not need to check in. Um, like if she doesn't have Down syndrome anymore, I reckon you'll find out on the news. Um, you know, I've always thought like the headline in the news will be 
woman cured of Down syndrome refuses to return parking permit. Yeah. Like I've always thought that's what, I'm just knowing Jackie, that's what it would be. So growing up in St Kilda with a lot of Orthodox Jewish families around, were you aware at the time of how, you know, Jewish your upbringing was? Or was that only something that really came to mind when you left St Kilda? Yeah, I mean, like, because, you know, my whole family was Jewish and we had Orthodox Jews knocking on our door every Friday and I went to a Jewish school and I played football for a Jewish football club, Ajax. Kind of like my whole world was just Jewish people. and I didn't realise, you know, that there were, like, non-Jewish people in the world. I mean, the first time that I, I think I encountered any sort of, like, you know, let's call it anti-Semitism. I don't think it really was, but I was, like, 12 years old playing footy for my school Mount Scobas and we're playing going to the Catholic school and there was a boy on the Catholic school who was like going around trying to put off our um, our team having shots on goal by just whispering bacon and like whispering like pork and I was I've always found that so funny um and so yeah that was the first time I realized like oh yeah there's like I don't know religious differences between me and other people and when I got to uni, I probably started meeting a lot more non-Jewish people. And then when I got into comedy, then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm crazy Jewish because um, I'm not the only Jewish person at this gig tonight. So all of a sudden, I just felt so much more Jewish when I was in a very non-Jewish environment. So, yeah, it probably took me like 25 years to realize how Jewish I was. And, and, and even though you described your family as secular, when you talk about how Jewish you are, are you still doing you know, like Friday night dinners or any kind of traditions like that? No, not really. I mean, but we do like, like culturally, there's just like so much cultural stuff around being Jewish. I mean, yeah, we do do like Friday night dinners kind of every couple of weeks, but we've got like the, the big holidays and stuff that we, you know, get together for. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to kind of explain how, because like when you take the religion out of it, you know, like I don't believe in God or anything like that because, you know, I prefer to be right but um, <laughs> once you take the religion out of it, um, there's still like, like, I think for me being Jewish is like just 95% just the food and yeah. like saying oy vey when something bad happens, you know, like, so that's what I mean, I guess, you know, when I say I'm Jewish. Another time that you encountered anti-Semitism was at your work at Subway, Michael. Tell me that story. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was like actual anti-Semitism, but I think it's still quite funny. I think everything is kind of funny. Um, I was like 15. I was working at Subway in Elsterwick. It was my first job. And I got paid $8.20 an hour, which I'm sure was below minimum wage. But I loved the job because you could make your own sandwich. And I would I love Subway. So I'll just go to absolute town on my sandwich, like you got a six inch sub, but I would probably cram in, you know, as much meat for like two yeah. foot long to do this one <laughs> six inch sub, just cause I just loved the meatballs there. So one day I'm on my lunch break, I'm eating my, my, my sub and my supervisor's out the front serving customers. And he comes back and he goes, oh, I just served these Jewish people. And I gotta say, Jewish people, they always ask for extra, extra this, extra that, extra this, extra that. They always want more Jews. And I wanted to be like, hey, stuff you, man. I'm Jewish, but I couldn't because I was eating about $75 worth of meat in my <laughs> sub at the time. So I, I couldn't tell him I was Jewish, otherwise I would just be reinforcing the stereotype. So 
think I got my revenge by just not turning up to work anymore. <laughs> and uh, I think that's how I quit, just by not turning up. When you go to Subway now, are you asking for extra toppings in the sandwiches or are you just taking what they give yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> no, when I, I'm, I'm that guy. I walk into Subway and I'll say, oh, I'll have a bit more yeah, tomato, A little please. bit more, Thank please. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit more, please. Um, they absolutely love it when you do that at Subway Alston. <laughs> Well, you don't work at Subway anymore, Michael. You've made a career in comedy, which we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. But first, you've chosen a song by Jet to play. Tell me about this one. (laughs) So this is Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet. And I think it came out like 2003 or thereabouts. And that was like smack bang in the bar and bat mitzvah season when we were like 12, 13 years old. So this song just got a run at every single bar and bat mitzvah function that I went to for like two years straight. And on top of that, um, it makes me think of David Southwick, who is currently the deputy leader of the Victorian Liberal Party, who at the time was also a very well-known DJ in the Jewish community. So he would be the DJ all these bar and bar mitzvah functions. So he would play this song. He would get us through the YMCA as well. It's crazy that this well-known politician was like, teaching us how to do the YMCA when we were 12 and 13. It's kind of like if you went to a wedding and like Scott Morrison was teaching you how to do the nut bush. Like it was just the weirdest thing. Yeah. So that's what this song takes me back to. Those sweaty bar and bar mitzvah dance floors with 12 and 13 year old boys and girls not knowing how to interact with each other. (laughs) Let's go there right now on FBI Radio 94.5. This song is Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming on the website, that song was by Jet. It was called Are You Gonna Be My Girl? And it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Michael Schaefer, who is a comic with a show coming up at the Factory Theatre at the end of the month. Just before, Michael, we were talking about growing up in St Kilda and, you know, how Jewish it was and Subway meat. <laughs> Your whole life wasn't at Subway, though. You had other dreams. What did you want to do? Hey, hey, hey. I could still be working full time <laughs> at Subway, all right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great career. And if you're making $8.20 an hour, good for you. But maybe ask for a pay rise if you're at Elstonwood. You you had other things on the horizon, though, when you finished school. I don't want to say you were dreaming bigger than Subway, but what were you doing when you went to university? Yeah, so I finished um, school and uh, I did well at school. Um, and then I went to Monash University and I studied, uh, I did a double degree of law and biomed because um, that's what uh, Jewish people do. And uh, yeah, I did that for five years or so. And I always liked studying. That was always, I was always kind of good at that. So I always kind of enjoyed doing that. But um, yeah, when it got to the end of like my degrees and I had to like, you know, choose a job, I was like, oh, this sounds awful. I don't want to do this. So I think that's kind of when I started to get into comedy because I wanted to avoid having a legitimate job. 
Did you have any experience in working in law before you decided that it wasn't for you? Like what brought you to that conclusion? Yeah, I did a couple of clerkships towards the end of my law degree, which is basically you do like a three-week extended job interview. So you work at a firm for three weeks and you fill them out and they kind of fill you out. And it was just so obvious to everyone there that I didn't want to be there. Like all the other people doing the clerkship are like, you know, super keen. They're turning up at like eight o'clock to like, you know, be early and get everyone coffee. And then I'm just like rocking up at like, 9.30, just absolutely taking the piss out of the whole thing. Like, it was <laughs> pathetic. Like, it was just pathetic the way I treated it. And then, uh, yeah, there was, like, one day where we were having a meeting with, like, the partners were coming down and telling us how much, you know, they appreciate work-life balance at this law firm. And it's just so important that you all have great work-life balance. And, you know, if that means you only work 80 hours a week, that's fine. Like, we'll completely make that work for us. And it was just, it just sounded absolutely insane the way they spoke about work-life balance. And I was like, oh, there's no way I'll be able to do comedy or anything else if I work in this industry. So yeah, I'm glad I got out. Your final year of uni brought you to Washington DC. How did you end up there? I wanted to finish my degree overseas. And how did I end up there? I was just like, I'll just go wherever. And they'll take me to be honest and I chose it was kind of like when you kind of do exchange in the US you can either go to a college town you know in the middle of like Ohio or something or you can try to aim for like a big city like DC and I knew that I wanted to do comedy so I thought well if I go to like a bigger city I'll be able to maybe start doing gigs and stuff over there so that's kind of why I chose DC and it was a lot of fun and my my university timetable there was like Monday night, 7 till 10 p.m. And then Tuesday, 3 till 9 p.m. So then I just had mm. the rest of the week off. So I was just doing gigs as much as I could and doing as... I was just trying to get as much comedy into me as I could because the comedy scene in D.C. is actually really great. I think a lot of people think of like New York and L.A. as like the best scenes, but D.C. is like super strong and a lot of fun. It, it sounds like when you went to D.C., you were already you know, pretty sure that comedy was going to be a path for you. How did that emerge in your life? Were you into comedy growing up? How did it become such a driving force for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I got my first taste of comedy at school because we would do like a annual um, speaking competition. And you were meant to choose like a serious topic that you're passionate about and like something, you know, kids would talk about climate change or whatever. And I would just completely take the piss and like do a still funny speech about the Teletubbies or something like that, something stupid like that. And, you know, I'd always get a laugh and it was always a lot of fun. And I think that was like my first foray into like doing comedy Mm. of sorts. And my dad would take me to the comedy festival every year. So I remember like one year we went to see the Umbilical Brothers and I was like just blown away by how amazing they were they were like so I mean I don't really I don't think they've influenced me much because I don't really do what yeah I don't do a lot of noises and stuff in my show but um it would kind of blew me away how funny they were and I remember when we saw Stephen K Amos one year and then just kind of came full circle when like a couple years later like I did a gig with him and I think that was like my first foray into comedy and so yeah and then I kind of let it go I didn't really pursue it until yeah I got to the awards the end of uni and I was too scared to be a lawyer so then I was like let's do comedy 
the only other viable career path. Yeah, and I want to come back to that crossroads in a couple of minutes, but first let's dive into a song, Michael. It's called Baby I've Got You On My Mind. Tell me about this one. Uh, I just love this song. I love the whole Vulture Street album by Powderfinger. I feel like it's been like the soundtrack for my entire life. Just whenever I'm on a road trip, it's that album comes on. It takes me back though to, in particular, just being on the school bus um, every morning on like a 45 minute school bus ride. Um, I just pop on this album and that was basically that was my ride and it was always like fun because you'd have you know you'd share one earphone with a friend and you know that was the way you got to school so this takes me back to commuting from East St Gilda to Burwood every morning when my bus would pick me up at 7 52 a.m and we get to school around 8 40 or so you're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 this is Baby I've Got You On My Mind by Powderfinger Powderfinger and Baby, I've Got You On My Mind. You heard it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with Michael Schaefer and taking a wander through the big moments and songs that have shaped his life. Where we left things, you were in Washington, D.C. doing stand-up comedy at open mics three or four times a week. You get to the end of uni. You're at this crossroads. Do I become a lawyer? Do I become a comic? Tell me about that that decision-making process and how you ended up taking the road towards comedy. Yeah, well, I mean, it just started with, um, you know, deciding that I couldn't happily be a lawyer. Um, And that was, that's not for everyone. Like, that's not for me. It was my girlfriend is a lawyer, absolutely Mm -hmm. loves it. She thinks it's fantastic. I ask her about her day and I always regret asking because it sounds awful and boring, but she loves it. (laughs) <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, it was never kind of the case. So yeah, when I was in DC, I was, I was actually more gigging like every night of the week, to be quite honest. Like I was trying to do like 15, 20 little gigs at open mics a week. Like if I finished class. That's crazy. Yeah, like if I finished class at like 10 p.m. on a Monday, I knew that it was an open mic that finished at 10.30 p.m. So if I got there on time, I could jump up last. Um, and it was just me before. I remember one night, this is how obsessed I was. Like it was like a Monday night. Washington DC was playing the Dallas Cowboys and it was a really, really close finish. And I rushed to get to this open mic, which was kind of in a sports bar. And at the end of the open mic, when I was jumping up, the DC and Dallas Cowboys match had gone into overtime. So it was the most exciting NFL match probably in the history of that city. And as I was trying to do comedy, to all these men in the bar that were just playing the game on a big screen behind me. So I had to be more funny than the most exciting NFL match in the history of Washington, D.C. And I can safely say that I was not more interesting than that game and no one listened to me. But 
those are the type of gigs that kind of I think kind of really shaped me because you know even though it was like an awful dive bar gig and no one was listening like I still loved it and um, yeah I was kind of addicted to it still am yeah it sounds like an amazing training ground for you just being so prolific and getting so many gigs out of the way and you know baptism by fire yeah. with these <laughs> kind of shows what was it like for you when you got back to Australia yeah well I tried to kind of come back to Melbourne kind of an applied I guess the habits that I'd learned in in DC to just kind of what I what was happening in Melbourne so you know I was just like well I'll just try and get as many gigs into me and get as much stage time as I can and just try to make sure I listen back to all my gigs and, and write and, you know, you know, acknowledge when something works, but also acknowledge when something doesn't work. So, yeah, I think I just kind of got really got really addicted to it in DC and then brought that back to Melbourne. And it's like definitely an addiction. I mean, it's probably one of the healthier addictions to have, but it's like full on addiction. Like, you know, you do a gig and, you know, you're like, oh, I should go home now, but I guess there's another open mic around the corner. So... Maybe I'll try and do five minutes there. Like, you're just always looking for the next hit. Yeah, 100%. It's like... You're like, I can walk away at any time. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm in control of this. You're like, I'm in control of this. And then you find yourself doing, you know, an open mic to four people and a dog in the back of a Vietnamese (laughs) restaurant on a Thursday at 11pm. And you're like, yeah, I'm in control of this. Yeah, this is... Like, this isn't rock... Like, that should be rock bottom. Yeah. You're absolutely loving it. You know, so it's hundred percent an addiction, but I, I I think I do have an addictive personality, um, which is why I've I've always stayed away from all those other vices because I feel like I would be able to control myself. So um, yeah, but comedy is hundred percent an addiction, and it should be treated as such. But for some reason, people are like, "Nah, it's a career, go for it." But it's crazy. <laughs> so so, what did your family think about this addiction that you had? Were they very supportive? <laughs> Um, yeah, I think they would have preferred it was drugs, to be quite honest. But <laughs> they were uh, surprisingly quite uh, supportive, actually. I think, you know, people kind of expect the Jewish parents to be very concerned about their, you know, child not being a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. But I think that, you know, I had shown to them that I was you know, committed and, and, and working quite hard at it. So they thought, well, we'll give him some leeway. And on top of that, like, you know, I, I got qualified as a lawyer. So my mother was like, well, he's always, he can always be a lawyer. That's mm-hmm. so he's always got that to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So um, even though if I fell back, if you ever, you know, find me working as a lawyer, you'll know something terrible has happened. <laughs> but uh, my mum was uh, pretty adamant that I have that as a fallback position. And by doing that, I think she stopped worrying. Yeah. She's like, he'll come back. He's fine. Um He'll come back. Yeah, he'll come back. In 2015, your partner and her family came to see a show you were doing as part of Melbourne Comedy Festival. <laughs> what do you remember about that show? Yeah, so this is rock bottom. This is rock bottom. But it didn't stop me from doing comedy. But this was rock bottom. Because like I started, so I was doing like a split show at the Comedy Festival in 2015. Bearing in mind, like I'm only a year into comedy, so I'm still very, very bad. And I'm doing this split show with two other friends. Um, and for some reason... Our like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday shows were like full and they were really fun and I was doing well. And I thought, oh, well, I'm good at comedy. So I should tell my girlfriend and her family to come and watch me because they've wanted to see how I'm going. And I thought, well, if they come on a Friday, that'll be crazy full because if the midweek was full, Friday will be even fuller. Anyway, they turn up to this gig on, on the Friday and they were most of the crowd. So there was like four of them no. and maybe like seven... <laughs> 
like seven people in the audience sparsely sitting around this empty room that the night before had seated, you know, 70 people. All of a sudden now there's seven people. Yeah. And, you know, there's just four of them in one corner. I go up to open the show and do 20 minutes to absolute silence, just bombing so hard. Like, I'm just sweating profusely on Your stage. girlfriend didn't like, laugh at your jokes. My girlfriend hates my... She ha- I, my girlfriend, oh, I shouldn't, you know, misrepresent her, but my girlfriend definitely isn't, like, a fan of stand-up comedy. Like, she wouldn't go out and watch stand-up. Um, and she finds some of my... She doesn't find me funny, basically, is what I'm trying to say. She doesn't find my... She doesn't enjoy my comedy. Um, she hates it. She hates me. She must so much admiration no, for no. each other's careers, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> I actually think it's great though because I think it's really I actually like having this it's funny you say that because I do like that we have no interest in each other's careers because um, I think I mean like obviously we want each other to be successful but we have no interest in like what each of us are doing which I think is the healthiest way to be like I don't want to you know be interested in comedy nor does she want me to be caring about her law law career like it it actually works really well for us but um, yeah no, no one laughed basically maybe I got some pity laughs from Amanda and her sister um, but it was just the worst you know, Amanda's parents were like what is just staring at me like what is he, he's, he's, this is the guy that our daughter has committed to this guy so <laughs> you know just awful like what's he talking about just ah. Oh. and then on the way home that night um, I drove my girlfriend Amanda home and just in the car she was like like what are you what's going on here what are you like, what do I tell my parents now? I'm like, I don't know. I've, she's like, you know, are you sure this is, are you sure there's a career here? And I was like, I, I don't know, you know, as much as I do. I mean, that was rock bottom. But somehow that, even that didn't stop me from doing comedy. So yeah, I guess I, again, like I said, it's a proper addiction. Yeah, so so clearly you're a great comedian than Michael and, you know, if anyone does want to see shows like these, Michael will be performing <laughs> his new show, For Sale, New Jokes Never What a great plug for, for the upcoming show. <laughs> Let's Just the talking show. about the, the absolute history of bombing to my girlfriend's family. <laughs> we can catch Michael at the end of the month at the Factory Theatre. Uh, but before we start talking about that, we've got a little bit more to talk about. In your life, Michael, I want to jump to 1971 um, and play a song from The Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack. Yep. Why did you pick this to play on the show today? Well, because I did my first show at the Comedy Festival in 2017 and the show was called Jewish-ish and it's all, it was all about being culturally Jewish but not religiously Jewish. And I've, the Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack is just this iconic Jewish soundtrack that every Jewish person knows. So... As people walked into the room, I had the song Tradition by um, Fiddler on the Roof playing as people walked in. And it's um, certainly, it's not a headbanger, but it really fit into the theme of the show. Amazing. We'll jump into that one right now on FBI Radio 94.5. From 
from the 1971 Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack. The song was called Tradition. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Michael Schaefer. My name is Mia Hull. We are rolling through the stories and songs that have shaped Michael's life. I want to jump to 2000. Can I just say, I'm so happy that Fiddler on the Roof was played on a radio station in Sydney. God, that brings me so much joy. There's a word in Hebrew called uh, nachas. When you get nachas from something, it's like when you get pride and joy from something. So much nachas from knowing that because of me, the Fifth on the Roof soundtrack was played in Sydney. And I presume people around the city are wondering what has happened to the radio station. Have they lost their minds that they're playing Fifth on the Roof? But it's a banger, guys. You've got to agree. The power you wield, Michael, it's incredible. <laughs> it's too much power. I'm abusing it. It's too much power. I can't be trusted with it. <laughs> I want to jump to 2017. You were given a little bit more power that year. You became a writer for the project. How did that fall into your lab? Yeah, well, I guess um, I don't think it fell into my lap in the sense that like I was just persistently emailing them to be like, Come how did you job. drag that into your job. lab? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably run away. How did I absolutely harass people into giving me a, a chance? Um, yeah, well, I was doing like a show on community TV called The Leak, which was like a topical news show, satirical news show. So I was doing a lot of like that type of writing. It was like, you know, topical jokes about the news. And that kind of gave me a bit of a foot in the door with the projects. A couple of guys who write there had seen me on that, but it also seen me do stand up. So <coughs> yeah, after like, sorry, I just choked on my own. I didn't know I choked on that. But um, <laughs> um, after just emailing them for like probably 12 months, eventually one of the other writers was leaving and then they were like, okay, Michael, um, we'll offer you a trial. So you go in for like a day or two and you write some jokes and if they get used on the show and they go, well, then yeah, you get a job. And so I, I wrote some jokes and I remember one of them, Pete Hellier used on the show and it hit pretty hard. And then, uh, yeah, and then the head writer gave me a call and was like, oh, I'm not sure if you're sure of that, but uh, Pete Hellier just did one of your jokes and uh, it went really well. So why don't you... Uh, come in and uh, you know sign a contract so yeah that's kind of how it happened and I started off five days a week and then it's kind of slowly cut back and now I'm kind of there two days a week because you know stand up is kind of now busier. Mm. Your your role there is you know mostly behind the scenes but sometimes you're on the tv as well does that differ much from from stand up doing comedy on television? Uh, Not particularly I mean it's more conversational obviously so Mm. You know, if I'm doing like an interview or something like that, um, you know, it's it's just has to be kind of real and in the moment, to be quite honest. Whereas when I'm doing stand-up, it, it looks like the thought is just coming to me now, but, you know, this is an idea or a joke that I've been thinking about or performing for months. Mm. So I think with stand-up, it's, uh, it is certainly, you know, rehearsed in the sense you kind of know what you're going to do and you have to make it look unrehearsed, whereas being on TV, particularly like a panel like that, it just has to be pretty loose and casual and spontaneous. Otherwise, it feels really awkward to try and Mm. like, you know, perform pre-rehearsed stuff in a conversation. It's, uh, I've tried that before and it it bombs real bad. It doesn't work at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing a good job of like pretending that this conversation is, you know, natural. (laughs) This is perfectly scripted word for word. I have prepared, I mean... 
You said to me beforehand, this is word for word what I'm saying. And I was yeah. like, this is word for word what I'm saying. <laughs> Stick to the and script, Michael. And it took Michael. us three months. To, yeah, sorry. I shouldn't, I'm now going off script. And here we are. We'll have to edit this out of the final interview. This is a, a terrible, terrible, terrible rant we've gone on. So, so 2017 obviously brought you Network 10's The Project. I guess you could call that a positive outcome from that year, but it wasn't all good. You had um, health problems come up that year as well, unrelated to the project. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, I really, really hope the project didn't cause my cancer. That would have been a crazy story. Jeez, uh, um, I should sue them if that was the case. Guys, it's your fault. No, I, um, yeah, so I, I got, I started at the project, yeah, started 2017. And then towards the end of uh, 2017, I was, um, it's like October. I've been feeling unwell for a few months, went to the doctor and got diagnosed with testicular cancer. So, um, yeah, that kind of obviously changed everything and I had to do chemotherapy and yeah, right now at the moment, I'm, you know, health is really good, but, uh, for a few years there it was, uh, yeah, pretty rough going in and out of hospital for, for quite a long time. You went into remission after you first were diagnosed with cancer in 2017, but that wouldn't be the end of your battle with cancer, would it? Yeah, so um, I was in remission for about two years or so, from like August 2018 to about May 2020. And then, yeah, I went in for my regular scan in May 2020 and they found a spot uh, growing in my abdomen because it had originally spread to my abdomen and chest. So there was obviously a spot in my abdomen they hadn't gotten. Um, and so that meant I had to go in for, yeah, more chemotherapy last year during the, the lockdown in Melbourne. So that was, uh, how I spent my lockdown doing chemo. A lot of my friends were like, you know, I've had a tough time too. I've had to homeschool the kids and, uh, fair enough. That is actually, I think homeschooling is worse than, uh, than getting cancer. If you ask me, because, uh, when you, when you get cancer, you're like, I'm going to beat this. But when you have to teach Jaden algebra, you're like, kill me now. Honestly, this is too much. Yeah, so I had a rough lockdown, but, you know, the parents had it worse, that's for sure. So going from having testicular cancer to then having abdominal cancer, have you noticed anything specific about the way people respond to news of testicular cancer as opposed to, in inverted commas, regular cancer? I mean, there's definitely, like, you know, those questions around like masculinity and stuff and yeah you always get like people are always like so what does everything look like down there <laughs> everyone's always curious I've, i I have a photo with me a big blob a three poster that i carry around with me of my genitals so i can just show them that uh at any moment which i think has been really educational for people um i can't go to the gym anymore but otherwise people have been really on board with that um no you just get those types of questions a lot and that's fine because i feel like you know, part of my role is to be a bit of an ambassador and, you know, explain to people what happens when you go through testicular cancer. Um, I mean, like I lost a testicle and to be honest, that means nothing to me. Like I don't really care, but yeah, I speak to a lot of guys who are like, oh man, if I lost a testicle, I would just feel like I'm losing a part of myself. And I'm just, (laughs) I think that's so funny to care so much about a testicle. Like it's so ugly to look at why would you want yeah. one so I, I think it's I always find it interesting how men define their masculinity in that way whereas I've never kind of really done that is that something that you explore in your comedy now as well yeah it's something I always find interesting to talk about the way because you can get a prosthesis for mm. if you want to like you know pop it in and uh is that the medical term you just pop in the I believe that's yeah sorry sorry for using all this medical jargon 
I don't want to, I'm sure the listeners are struggling to follow what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, you know, I've got a biomedical science degree. So, you know, obviously I'm going to use all this, you know, in terminology. Yeah. Uh, so they, pop, they can pop it in, but my urologist said like a lot of guys don't like that because it gets uncomfortable to have this plastic thing down there so they often get it taken out so but he also said that you can get like small medium large when they put in the prosthesis and he was like young men always go for the large i always want the big one <laughs> and I'm just, like, just one big one one big one please i will have one big testicle thank you and um they always hate it because it's always like uneven and whatever but you know they're idiots so they get the yeah. big one which i think is quite funny that's hilarious yeah and i mean until then you're pulling off skinny jeans so well um <laughs> oh a, it's a great little... no i've got so much more space around the crotch area yeah. i highly recommend it <laughs> so i guess um stand-up comedy is a lot of the time based around stories from the comics own life and cancer other than homeschooling is one of the least funny or enjoyable things that can happen to a person. How do you make that funny? <laughs> How do you turn that into jokes that are palpable and, you know, don't make people uncomfortable? Well, I think they do make people uncomfortable. So, and that's kind of, I think, where you can get a lot of good comedy. So when you talk about something on stage that creates a lot of tension, there's also the potential for a really big laugh and a big payoff at the end of it. So, which is something I didn't really think about until I actually watched Hannah Gatsby's Nanette because she talks she kind of deconstructs comedy and talks about that in the show and I was like oh yeah maybe that's why my cancer material seems to have a bigger laugh at the end of it than other stuff so yeah I think if you well at least in my experience I found that talking about you know more challenging topics and darker topics like cancer on stage has actually been really helpful for me I think it's made me funnier kind of paradoxically because if you can find a punchline out of that there's a huge like you know, release of tension in the room and everyone's just like, oh, we, we, we're okay. So, yeah, that's... So since kind of talking about cancer on stage, I've kind of gotten the courage, I guess, to talk about, you know, other tough topics on stage that make people uncomfortable. And, you know, that means that there's, you know, going to be times where it doesn't work and, you know, I don't get the balance right. But um, when you pull it off, it's it works really well. Michael, I want to jump into a song by Amy Shark. I, I was surprised to see this one in your list of songs. What made you pick it? I chose it because when I was going through chemo, um, this song by Amy Shark, I Said Hi, was just like this really almost like defined song about someone going through a tough time who comes back from, from being on the ropes. And that was kind of how I felt going through the chemo. I was like, yeah, this is like dominating my life at the moment, but you know, I'm going to use this later on to get back into comedy. So yeah, this was that, this meant a lot to me that's i don't think amy shark wrote it with me in mind but uh it still meant a lot to me it's amy shark on fbi radio 94.5 the song's called i said hi you're listening to out of the box with me mia hull and michael schaefer
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was called I Said Hi. It was by Amy Shark, and it was chosen by my guest on the show, comic Michael Schaefer. 2020, not a great year for anyone, especially not you. Your cancer came back. You had to go through chemo while in the longest lockdown in the world. Um, I guess being part of the longest lockdown in the world meant that your career as a comic changed shape a lot as well Michael tell me about that yeah well it was um a tough year obviously for all comedians not being able to do stand-up and just almost forgetting how to do stand-up it was actually I will say that doing chemotherapy during lockdown had that psychological advantage where it was like well kind of not missing out on anything anyway so might as well tick off the chemo and, and, and do that while everything is in lockdown. So there was that psychological advantage to it. So yeah, and then I kind of finished up chemo just as we were coming out of lockdown. So I, um, you know, it was pretty, kind of timed it pretty well, to be quite honest. I thought that was really kind of smart for me. Um, but yeah, kind of, but also I think like going through cancer during lockdown and um, being immunocompromised really made me a really strong pro-vax everyone go out and do your bit to protect the people who are immunocompromised as well so i think that also informs a lot of my comedy now because yeah i make uh, i make fun of anti-vaxxers quite a lot now but that's because i feel like i have a personal beef with them and so you've got a show coming up at the end of the year for sale new jokes never told which is part of a nationwide tour you're doing are we going to expect any pro-vax jokes in the set then, Michael? <laughs> There'll definitely be some pro-vax jokes. Mind you, people who are like also like crazy pro-vax, they're also just as annoying as the anti-vaxxers. You know, the people who are like, I got AstraZeneca on my first day and then I got 12 more booster shots and I'm like, oh, you are killing me here. Yeah. So, you know, there's crazy, there's annoying people on either side of the debate. But um, the good thing is that you can make fun of anti-vaxxers quite safely now because they are not allowed in the venue. So yeah. um, that's quite... That quite that does help a bit. You kind of you are very much. I don't like preaching to the choir. So maybe I'll. Maybe I don't want. I, I hate. I like telling people the opposite of what they think. So maybe I'll make fun of the provaxes. I don't know. I just like doing the opposite of what people expect. <laughs> but um, yeah, I certainly. I mean, I kind of am more inspired by the news and current events. So yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of that vaccination material in the show. That's for sure. What else can we expect? What else can we expect? Well, I'm kind of just talking about you know, my last 12 months or so. So a lot of that has been about being in lockdown, trapped in the, the, our, our place with, uh, with my partner. So um, somehow we've managed to survive and get through it without uh, killing each other, which I think is a huge testament to the relationship that we've gone uh, 12 years, you know, a couple of those in lockdown and, and somehow the relationship has survived. But I guess if it could survive that, awful gig back in 2015 to Amanda and her family it can probably survive anything so um you're really selling it yeah <laughs> yeah look I'll put it this way I think if you've been you know uh, if you're in a relationship and you guys have spent a lot of time together uh come along to the show because I think you'll find uh my complaints and whinging uh very very relatable <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the show in question is Michael Schaefer's show, For Sale, New Jokes, Never Told, which will be happening at the Factory Theatre in Marrickville on Thursday, November 25, from 7 to 8pm. I'll pop the details of that one up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. Michael, apart from the show, what does the future hold for you? 
<laughs> Great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've <laughs> it's so hard to make plants uh, in the future when you when COVID is still floating around. But yeah, I'm trying to just tour, and so um, I've got a month of shows booked in WA. So let's see if Mark McGowan lets my vaccinated self in. Um, but yeah, then I'm going to obviously go to Adelaide and and Melbourne, and I'll come back for the Sydney Comedy Festival hopefully next year. So. I just want to make up for lost time at the moment. I think every comedian feels that way. We've been mm. denied our addiction for so long that we now just <laughs> need to fix. just, you know, we need a fix. We need to just inject it into our veins as much as we can. So, yeah, that's the plan. Amazing. Well, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for you and obviously see you popping up on the project on Network 10 here and there as well. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've chosen a song by Drake to finish off the interview with. Why did you pick this song? This song is uh, started from the bottom and now we're here. And I just like the song. I don't, again, I don't think Drake wrote it with me specifically in mind, but I th- it's just a song about, I think it's about, at least for me, it's about just like hard work and persisting and grinding. And uh, that's kind of how I view comedy. And that's also how I kind of view my health as well so yeah it always uh gets me up and about this song chosen by michael schaefer on fbi radio 94.5 this track is by drake it's called started from the bottom and it comes with a language warning if you did want to listen back to this show you can do so on the programs page on fbiradio.com where you'll also find all of the information for michael's upcoming show for sale new jokes never told happening at the factory theater at the end of the month you can also listen back to this episode via the podcast wherever you get your podcast Hey, big shout outs to producer Natasha for researching this episode and stick around. Lunch is up next. FBI. I wear every single chain, even when I'm in the house, because we started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team fucking here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here, nigga. No new niggas, nigga, we don't feel that. Fuck a fake friend, where your real friends at? We don't like to do too much explaining. Story stay the same, I never changed it. No new niggas, nigga, we don't feel that. Fuck a fake friend, where your real friends at?